What is experiential therapy? Well, it can include things like art, play, and equine-assisted psychotherapy. And that's exactly what I'm talking to Marla Berger of Berger Counseling Services about today. And we're going to talk about how it's so important that we get things out of our brain, into our bodies, and out of our bodies if we want to implement change. Our physical, mental, and emotional health is not just a want. It is a need for happy lives and prosperous businesses. Lift You Up is the podcast where we share inspiring health stories from business owners who are fulfilling their purpose to live their healthiest lives and helping you do the same. From former TV reporter to marketing entrepreneur and content creator, I care about sharing stories that matter and stories that connect us. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham, your health and wellness matchmaker. Well, today I'm so excited to meet virtually and introduce to all of you Marla Berger, who is also here in South Florida, just a little bit further north than I am in Miami. She is the founder of Berger Counseling Services and really has a unique and interesting approach and also background. And first, let me just say welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm definitely excited to learn a little bit more about your personal story. And if you can kind of walk us through your journey, your path that led to your business today. Yeah, well, um, I have always been a, a lover of horses. And so that's just something that I've always been really interested in, as well as art. And I really didn't know what that was going to look like because I didn't want to be a jockey. I didn't want to be an art starving artist. And and so I just knew that those were things that I was really passionate about and just had a lifelong obsession with. Um, when I was 16, my friend John died by suicide. And just a few months after that, I just turned 17. And someone had casually just mentioned the words art therapy. And I was like, that's what I'm going to be. And so in my junior year of high school, I started educating myself about how to become a registered art therapist. And it kind of took off from there. Um, I then went on to University of Florida and got my bachelor's and then to University of Louisville in Kentucky to get my master's. And while I was there, I started volunteering with a therapeutic writing center. And I just knew like this was nice, but also not quite what I thought therapy and horses could look like. And um, at the time, um, this equine assisted psychotherapy program was kind of growing in our nation. And so I got um, involved in that kind of from very early on and really found that I loved doing instead of talking. And so um, I do mention John because again, like he allowed uh, me to kind of learn all of these different things, sadly, because of his death and really introduced me to, you know, the perils of mental illness and just how much we need to intervene at a really young age so that people don't complete suicide. Um, instead, you know, feeling like they might have other options. I'm sorry to hear about your your friend, John, who who died of suicide at 16. Um, was that a catalyst for you to really think about going in this direction? So not at all. It And at the same time, yes. So it took me about 10 years and all of a sudden it clicked. I was like, if someone had said art therapy to me, would I have actually been interested if not for John? 
But at the time, it wasn't like, that's it. I could help people like nothing like that. It kind of was probably a very subconscious space that I was like, oh, maybe that led to me being open to the term art therapy. It, it, it was not conscious at all. It wasn't something I was seeking out, like, oh, I need to be a therapist now to help people. But it just clicked. And so I really attribute, you know, just his openness with talking about mental health issues. Um, this was the very early 90s, and we didn't talk about mental health issues. And so he was very open about that. And I just really took my cue from him and saying, that's who I want to be when I get older is someone who can talk about really hard things openly. And, um, mm. and, and that was something that, you know, I just took my cue from him and said, well, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And then it just so happened that I thought therapy would be a good choice. And I'm glad that I did that because I think that he really helped motivate me. Yeah. And you know what, that brings up a question um, that's interesting about you know being in the early 90s and really these conversations weren't so open we obviously we we barely even had computers in the household i think at that time never mind social media and everything that we have now um how do you see things have changed as far as talking about mental health from then to now so the good thing is is that mental health issues have a lot less stigma. So we can really talk about them. Talking about death continues to have quite a lot of stigma and talking about suicide or substance abuse, huge amounts of stigma as well. But the just the act of talking about mental health issues and seeking therapy is so much more open now. Um, social media wise, I am a bit worried because there are so many trends of people thinking that they have diagnoses when they don't mm. and and it kind of muddies the water for the people who actually do have them and it's much harder sometimes for them to seek help because everyone's like oh you don't have that it, you're just thinking it's a TikTok trend or something like that would maybe actually yes they really do um and so for me there's a little two-edged sword on this one where it's a really good thing that we're talking more about it. And at the same time, I think a lot of people are reading, reading into some of the things that are just being a normal person. So I'd love to ask your insight around, do you think uh, social media in ways is contributing to more mental health struggles with teens? I do in, in the respect that we're not spending enough time in actual communication with other humans, we're not spending enough time in nature, we're not exercising, we're not sleeping. We're doing things like scrolling and clicking that allow our body and our mind to think that we're having these very uh, meaningful moments of connection, but what they are are these brief little moments of, um, I made a choice or I made a connection, but that doesn't actually extend that time of like real deep, interpersonal connection. Social media has some really good benefits, but it also has a lot of really negative ones because our ability to sit in boredom, our ability to <laughs> find things to do, um, it's a very mindless activity versus a mindful activity. And I think that that's actually a really big problem in today's youth is that 
there's a real fear of getting things wrong, of doing things wrong. And so it's much easier to manage everything either by text or by doing things through social media, because if I didn't like it, I could edit it, change it until it's just the way that I want it. Mm, very interesting. And when you said that point about like just being able to be bored, it made me think back to my childhood, like being home because um, I, I, my mom's only child, so I didn't grow up with any siblings in the house and she worked often. So I just remember being home like I'm bored. <laughs> there was pretty much the TV or go play outside in the neighborhood. Yeah. And we're not doing really play outside in the neighborhood anymore. Um, and you know, the way I grew up, we lived on a, on a street and probably my parents had no idea where I was on any given moment, but they knew I'd be in that vicinity. That doesn't exist anymore, really. Um, there's just a, a, a real concern, obviously, for children's safety, which is a good thing. And that again, that double edged sort of over, over, over protection protection and what we're seeing is just a huge rise in anxiety with kids because their adults are so anxious and so hovering and not letting their kids make mistakes and i think that that mm. is is part of why we see teens who are so fearful of making mistakes because it felt like the end of the world and so learning to fail learning to make mistakes learning to fall literally fall you know mm. Mm -hmm. That's something that we kind of took away from our kids. We made things very safe, which sounds good on the on the surface, but it's okay to fall down and get a, a scraped knee. How else do we learn? <laughs> exactly. I know it was an article in the Wall Street Journal. I can't remember the exact statistics or, or numbers right now, but it was pretty much saying that there's a much higher instance of feelings of sadness or depression and anxiety Um in teen girls, but also teen boys, but they saw it much higher than it was, I guess, 20 years ago or something like that. Um, <clears throat> I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, why you think there's higher rates of anxiety. You know, I think that part of it is we live in a world where there's so much going on and and from one generation to the next we're really talking completely different languages and also i can just see the intergenerational space of um parents who are like run with knives to parents who are so 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 i mean we've really gone into the helicopter parent you know kind of space and i think that what that's done is really create within parents um, as well, a feeling of just pure anxiety that if I don't do everything right to protect my child, to ensure that they succeed, like that's it. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of going to be judged or my, my child's life is going to be ruined. And so there isn't the ability even for the parent to fail. And so there's just this long lasting space of anxiety and it just sits in the family. And so and, and this is something where our bodies are then producing hormones that are being triggered, you know, because of that anxiety space, you know, and depressive thoughts and feelings really typical in teens. I think also we're being more open to looking at that and not just brushing it off as a teen being a teen. And so just like a lot of statistics, sometimes 
we're just more open to actually seeing it now and acknowledging it um such as like you know theoretically the 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 rates of autism haven't technically really risen but because people are actually looking they're finding it and so we're we're having these bigger um conversations and we're starting to notice things more I want to sh- shift gears just a little bit, still within the same realm, um, to talk about um, something that really stood out to me in your bio about experiential therapies um, and really understanding what that means. It kind of sounds like what it is. Experiential therapies means that we're doing something, we're experiencing something. And so in traditional talk therapy, this is it. We're just talking. There's not um, not any doing technically. And a lot of times in traditional talk therapy, we'll talk about what we would like for someone to, a skill maybe that we would like them to go on and do. And then we just hope they remember, hope that it worked out, knowing that just like any time we do something on our own for the first or second or 10th time, probably not going to be doing it very well. We're probably going to forget, you know, all of those things. And so the real basis of experiential therapies is that we're doing something. And so experiential therapies is the kind of the catch-all for um, art therapy, music therapy, dance and movement, equine-assisted psychotherapy, animal-assisted therapies. Lots of times we say, oh, well, I'm doing art therapy because I drew today. Well, you're not ever doing therapy unless there's an actual therapist in the room with you. Um, and so, you know, I'll joke around. I'll be like, oh, baby therapy, you know, and get a little <laughs> cuddle in. But that's not, I know that that's not actually therapy. And so um, we do want to be clear that that to do experiential therapies, you have to actually have a, a trained therapist in the room. Makes um, sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And they actually have to be trained in in the, the the modality that they're they're talking about. So a lot of people do throw around that idea of doing art therapy because they're a therapist and they add art, but they're actually not allowed to say that they do art therapy because they're not a registered art therapist um, or expressive arts therapist and who has a, a, a certification credential that says that they are allowed to do art therapy. Um, and so a lot of people kind of bandy these words around a little bit and um, forget that it really does take a certification to be able to say that you provide those things, which is really important. So my specialties, um, I am a registered art therapist, I'm a registered play therapist, and I'm advanced certified in equine assisted psychotherapy. So I work with horses as, um, as my partners in doing therapy. I do art and play and another modality called Santray, which kind of falls under that play therapy area, which is a whole bunch of different figures and stones and shells and trees, just kind of anything you can think of, different types of figures, um, figurines, things like that. And then a really beautiful box of sand. And we actually then kind of show what's going on in our world by picking those things that might represent those different issues that we're going through and placing them in our sand tray. Those are all really cool things that I have never heard about associated with therapy. So tell me a little bit more about 
the difference between or the benefits, I guess I should say, of these experiential therapies or specifically what you do with art, play and equine assisted psychotherapy. psychotherapy. Yeah. I was like, OK, I didn't know if I was going to get that one right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the benefits of actually doing something. We're actually creating times of stress within the session. So what if I said to you, hey, you know, we're going to go um, and um, use chalk pastels today, which are really messy. They get all over us, you know, and you're really worried about get, making things perfect and correct. And your anxiety is going up and up and up. And the thing is, is that there's no consequence if we got our therapy wrong that day. This isn't a test. Your boss isn't going to grade you and make sure that you're paid or not paid based on the benefits of what you created that day. But your brain doesn't know that this is not a stressful experience. In fact, it, it interprets it as a stressful experience. And so we get to, in that microcosm of the therapy session, play out what that stress might look like, what that anxiety might look like, what that self-doubt and I can't do it and I don't deserve good things, all of those inner beliefs and... And then we might say, hmm, what if we were able to change this? What if we were able to challenge this? What if we were able to use a coping strategy? Let's try it here right now. Did it work? And in a way, we're actually then practicing in real time, in your real body, with your real anxiety. Because again, your body does not know that there was no problem failing today. Didn't matter. You know, this was a meaningless activity that we're doing doesn't matter your body and your, your brain just believe that it's that stressful and so we get to then see did that strategy work or not because why would i then say try it at home really what we're doing is we're practicing and practicing all of these big things you know the other true benefit is we harbor so much inside of our body and so I was yes. talking with one of my clients the other day and we were talking about things and, you know, we both have very logical brains and we're like, yep, yep. That makes perfect sense. Yep. Okay. And I said, but did that help any of those inner feelings or beliefs? Like we have the logic part. We understand. Right. And they're like, no. And I'm like, exactly. So now we've got to do something to get it outside of our body, outside of our brain. And so what we did was we then switched to an art activity that um, it's a really cool art therapy um, uh, activity that we were then able to draw out some of those big things and then get them out of our body so that they didn't have to sit there anymore. And that's the other thing is that we get to then have these really amazing times of putting our stuff out into the world. First of all, then we can see it and go, hmm, did I like that? Did I want to do that again? How would I like to shift this? And then also just to be able to have that relief of having it out of our body instead of sitting there inside of it. Okay, so can you walk me through like an example of what this, because I know you mentioned, hey, um, kind of creating a, a tension and then yeah. like implementing a coping strategy. Yeah. So, what so we might like? start with, let's say, um, we're working on a lot of like big feelings of anxiety and, um, and, and, and difficulty with connecting. And maybe we're at the barn and I might say, well, today we're going to practice two strategies. 
to help um, with some of that anxiety. And so we're going to go through them real quick. And one of them is a really simple strategy called 54321. And it's noticing five things we can see, four things we can hear, three things we can touch, two things we can smell, and one thing we can taste in that moment. And that's a grounding technique to allow us mm. to stop and then feel our body and then come back to the present without the, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and so I might say, all right, let's let's try our five, four, three, two, one. One of the things that happens is, is that as our brain's starting to freak out, freak out, freak out, we, um, we're really activated kind of in our brain stem, in our limbic system, like the really old parts of our brain. And the forebrain, the part that doesn't fully grow until we're 27, you know, we got to get the forebrain, that, that frontal lobe kind of online again, because it turns off when we're freaking out. Mm. And so one thing that we can do is rhythm and movement. And so um, a lot of my teens, a lot of my adults, very music oriented. And so we might just say, all right, we're going to have our Spotify playlist, which song is going to help in this moment. And we're just going to throw that song on because that music hits the base of our brain and goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, cool. Or mm -hmm. we might even just sway or we might even tap. And so there's lots of different really cool things that we can do in that moment. So we're going to practice our two techniques and let's say we'll say five, four, three, two, one, and we're going to pick a song. Now, then I'm going to say, all right, now I'm going to probably trigger you. And without telling you how to do anything, here's a halter, go catch and halter a horse. They're all out open on five acres. Go for it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> things just got real. And so instantly, sometimes my clients are flooded with like dread or Marla's setting me up. She wants me to fail. All of these negative cognitions start coming in and a paralysis or, but, uh, but you, okay. How so, do I do it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. So what do we need to do? Let's try five, four, three, two, one. Let's try our music and see if we can get regulated again. And what would be the worst thing that happened? You don't catch a horse today, which is meaningless. Okie mm -hmm. dokie. Yeah. And so by doing these really small little um, things, because there's no consequence, there's no problem if it doesn't happen. Right. We get to then practice in real time, experiencing these thoughts and feelings, experiencing living through them, because that's actually a huge piece with anxiety is that we try and bubble wrap ourselves from every anxious situation and what that means is that we kind of lose the muscles for how to manage them. And so COVID was like life-saving for many of my clients because they were having so much social anxiety, so much sensory overload in the school system. Going home was amazing and they were cured, according to them. The problem is, is that we also lost all of the muscles for how do I handle the myriad of stuff that happens all day. And what I've done is kind of bubble wrap myself, protect myself and allow myself not to have to experience so many of those things. Um, and so um, getting back out there in the world and realizing oh, I did not explode. I did not catch fire. I didn't just 
fall on the ground fainting because I got so upset or anxious or whatever. I, I did it. I lived through it. Oh, you know, I can do this. And that's a really big part of the anxiety is just being able to help scaffold someone up to being able to move around in their world better. Mm. Okay. Doesn't mean anxiety is not there, but how do we work with it? How do we deal with that? Right. That's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm like, you know, I'm definitely, I'm definitely hearing a lot of around like the social anxieties, but so I wanted to ask an example maybe around or how is this better for someone that's dealing with that? Because I'm thinking I'm, I'm putting myself in the, the shoes as just on the other maybe opposite end of that where it's like no social anxieties put me at all the social things, but those feelings of like overwhelm, et cetera, like all, and you mentioned the perfectionist thing, like all of those things coming up and like as more comes my way, it's just more of like the do more, keep doing more um, and power, like kind of the powering through, like even when you were talking about doing art, my friend actually got me, I think for Christmas, a really fun coloring book. And I try and art is not something I like visual art or like drawing or anything like that. And I'm very into the arts, but that's the one thing I feel like I've always been terrible at. Like my stick figures are ugly. And yeah. <laughs> I, I tried one night, like just coloring in this coloring book. I'm not good at matching colors. And then I got all upset because I didn't like the colors that I used in this coloring book. Yeah. And <laughs> that's a great example because, you know, we can work through so many things. So I work with children three years old all the way up through adults. And so and we work on a variety of things. And we've talked a lot about anxiety, you know, and that does think social anxiety. But we also can think of it anxiety, um, you know, just more of that perfectionism, the fears of getting things wrong, the overworking. I've worked in addictions and really seen like how much we can, you know, engage in things like working out or tanning or eating or things like gambling that, you know, including our substance use, mm -hmm. um, all of this to kind of fill ourselves up um, with more and more and more, um, because it's very hard, as we've talked about, to just be. Mm -hmm. and just to stop and so um you know for me that'd be a great example of saying okay let's pull out a coloring book <laughs> now i really don't but i have in the past but what would happen if your stick figure wasn't good enough <laughs> ultimately in this in in the that wouldn't do world, it <laughs> nothing happened yeah like, other than the fact that you were disappointed Right. But how else has disappointed shown up? How else has perfectionism shown up? How else is being in the moment? That's the most important thing. And so, um, again, in experiencing time and mindfully experiencing it is so important. So for me, that's a, just a lovely example because we really do need to be able to go not good at it, but did I enjoy the process? Did I get out whatever was inside? And so most of the art that we do in art therapy is not pretty because let's face it, if we're getting out all that yuck inside, should it be? Probably not. It's mm. probably pretty awful. And so in those moments when we're getting more and more frustrated because it's not turning out right, 
knowing that this is not art class. No one needs to do anything good. Um, and that's actually what I model is practically all my figures are stick figures. You know, there's not a lot of good drawing going on when I'm doing the same art therapy technique that my clients are doing. Yeah. Because it's not about doing good art. Yeah. And that... we're actually just trying. <laughs> right. And as you're saying that, that like made sense to me where it was like, hey, if I was doing the coloring book, only because of how I thought it was going to look after I finished, I'm missing the purpose. <laughs> yes. And that's one reason why I'm not a big coloring book kind of person. Like I actually teach um, other clinicians and I teach my clients how to do mandalas, which are drawing inside of a circle. It's one of the most mankind's most ancient art forms. And we just use blobs of colors and lines and shapes because I want to free everyone from the idea mm. that it has to look like something. And all it is is using the colors that are meaningful to us. And we all have our own color vocabulary where um, to us, if we think red, we have maybe thoughts and feelings. There's maybe even a taste or a smell that's associated with it. And then even shades of color like light blue versus dark blue have completely different meanings. And, and, and that is kind of how we are with colors, except we forget that. And so freeing ourselves from anything of what it should look like, because it might just look like blobs of color, but it's our blobs of color that represent what's going on inside of our lives. I love that. How does someone know if this type of experiential therapies are right for them? Most of the time, experiential therapies mean that things are going faster because what we're doing is we continue to process things week after week, you know, but during the week, our clients are still thinking of it. And so it's a very, because it's a very physical thing. So there's going to be times where we're like, oh my gosh, this is just like that situation with the rope from the other day. And where we might have used a rope and asked someone for connection, asked, of course, there's someone um, to, mm -hmm. for connection, or we might have asked them to move away from us because we were uncomfortable with them um, being so close and we needed to set a good boundary. And like, oh, it's a rope situation all over again. I need to set my boundaries, you know? And it's like, wow, and we have this like kind of visceral remembrance of those things. And they last for years and years and years. I can still remember times. Um, in in, a, in an experiential um, session with horses or in art or in Santre, I, I get right back to that flooded moment of, oh my gosh, it's just all men again, in a good way. Because then I can go, oh, I want to do this different. I don't want to do it my old typical way. Mm -hmm. um, and so most of the time, experiential therapies do help us work through things faster which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all about saying goodbye to clients. I really, I have had clients sometimes for many, many years. And that's because they have such a significant, long lasting trauma history. But that's not really my default. My default is, can I have you get as, 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 you know, as healthy, happy, you know, as possible, kind of as quickly as possible, you know, and that might be six months for three of those months, we're only seeing each other every couple weeks because things are going so much better. That would be great. Um, mm. And so it's not like therapy to be fast necessarily, but we want it to be meaningful and 
purposeful and we want to help people hopefully as quickly as possible because no one wants to feel like this for very long. It, it really lets us practice so that mm -hmm. we believe in ourselves when it's actually in a real life situation so that we can ready ourselves and really feel that we can try it. Um, you know, there's so many times where I've learned a technique and if I hadn't have practiced it in an experiential manner where I saw that it had been helpful, I am certainly not probably going to remember it, first of all, in a real life situation or even consider doing it because mm -hmm. it's kind of got no, it's got no legs and it also isn't sticky. My brain isn't really focused on it and thinking mm -hmm. about it. What is most rewarding about this work for you? Seeing how people come up with their own metaphor. So instead of me saying, this is what your life is about, this is what is going on, for them to come up with their own thoughts and feelings, their own metaphors for what are going on, and then we get to run with it. Um, I've had sessions where we'll be doing um, maybe a sand tray and someone will pick a figure that for them just represents this really cool idea. And I'm like, I will always think of that client then every time that figure is being picked because they came up with this really cool metaphor with it and, and that represented something in their life and they were able to guide that. And so it's not me guiding it, but it's them. I want to know, because I always ask all of our guests this question, um, what is one thing that you do every day, maybe like an actionable tip for the audience that makes you feel your best and you know your, allows you to show up as your best self each day? I'm a sedentary person. I would much rather sit and read a book all day, all night. <laughs> but that's not very good for me. And it's not very good for my anxiety. And so doing something, being physical, even though that's not really my nature, has been immensely helpful. Um, I also have um, this really sweet little patio on um, the back end of our, of our condo. And it's got a waterfall. And we have all these plants that we have, thank goodness, kept alive. <laughs> um, that's been a miracle in itself. Um, and sitting out there just for a few minutes every day is so grounding to hear the birds, mm. to hear the water, to just look around at this greenery is really, really immensely helpful. And so building that into my kind of daily routine, I think right. is a, a really helpful thing. Right. Like you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, getting out in nature and that's like part of your nature and engaging with that. Yeah. Nature is inherently grounding. And so what starts to happen is, is that, again, that back of the brain, it's looking for rhythm and movement and sounds. Well, in nature, we start to hear this rhythmic music and it's maybe the birds or the trees and moving in the wind and that rhythmic movement, which is also so helpful for the brain. Um, and so many metaphors come up. I mean, I remember a session where um, we had a whole session because a rabbit decided to to walk walk up to us, hop up to us, and was standing <laughs> about eight feet away from us. And we're like, it knows we're here, right? I mean, it's a wild animal. 
it does not have to be here. And it's just, and then it froze. And so we talked about how rabbits maybe rabbit up, maybe that's their freeze. And then we had a whole conversation about fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn, <laughs> and all of our other trauma responses. And just because a rabbit decided to hop on over for some reason. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, this has been, Marla, this has been such a great conversation. I've enjoyed learning from you. Um, I'd love for you to share how people can learn more about you, your website, social media, all the things. Thank you. <laughs> yes. This has been such a joy um, to talk. So um, people can find more information um, on my website, burgercounselingservices.com. And my social media handle is Burger Counseling Services, um, Facebook and Instagram. And so um, you get to learn all about me um, under my About Us page, but also my wonderful clinicians who work with me, Christine, Valerie, JC, and Nadia. And so um, I also offer lots of different workshops and trainings, um, both on demand and live in person, including one on nature play therapy <laughs> coming on up. Uh, and that's something that I think we um, we get to learn um, uh us clinicians get to learn lots of new techniques. And that's something that I love doing trainings and workshops so that people can learn lots of new things. But I also learn from them as well, because they'll come up with some really cool activity. And I'm like, that is the most amazing thing ever. And I am so going to use that myself in my own practices. I love that. I'm looking forward to the one on nature play therapy. <laughs> and we'll make sure to link to all of your links below in the show notes so everyone can find you easily. Marla, this has been awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we go? Oh, no, just that I hope everyone takes a minute, maybe tries five, four, three, two, one, and really enjoys the day. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. You gave me a lot to think about, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Marla. I know I learned so much. I'm looking forward to checking out more of what she has coming out as far as her workshops and all of her information there on the website. You can find that linked below in the show notes as well as her social media. So make sure to connect with her and her team. And hey, also connect with me. I tell you every other week, just in case you haven't, you know you can find me all the places, but I'd especially love to connect with you on LinkedIn as well as on Instagram and YouTube where you can find new episodes of this podcast every other week. So make sure you go there, hit subscribe and turn on those notifications because I'd hate for you to miss out. So when I see you back in two weeks, because I know I'll see you then, stay happy, stay healthy.